You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. So we're finishing out Mark 6. We're going to start in verse 45. I'll read our text for us and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into this together. Starting in the 45th verse of the 6th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, we hear this. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and moored to the shore, and when they had got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid their sick in the marketplaces and implored him that, he might that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And this is the word of the Lord. So uh, we're, we're in this story, and we have to put ourselves back in context. I don't know if you can tell, jumping in here, it, we're jumping into a story that's already in motion. So over the course of this chapter, we've seen kind of this buildup of this, this kind of single narrative with Jesus, right? We've talked a lot about this and how this is one of the examples of the Mark and Sandwiches, and it starts the story and stops and restarts again. But just to put us on the same page, this chapter starts with Jesus already kind of in the flow of his ministry. He's traveling around Galilee, preaching and doing miracles. He has this simple yet profound message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And he backs up this message saying, God is doing something new. You can be a part of it. He backs this message up by performing miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, doing all this crazy stuff. And his ministry has gained momentum. It's gained a huge following. It's gained attention, not just amongst the common people of rural Galilee, but amongst religious leaders and social leaders and even up to high-end political leaders. And this chapter starts as the ministry has gained enough momentum and size that Jesus takes his closest followers and he essentially commissions them to participate in the work. He sends out the twelve in groups of two, and they participate in the ministry. He gives them specific instructions for what they're to do. They're to preach his same message and do these same miracles of healing the sick and casting out demons. And they go and they do. And as they do that, Jesus' ministry, his message, gains even more notoriety. And we get, that's where we hit pause and we get the story about King Herod and, and how he had heard about Jesus and connected it to John the Baptist. And we hear about John the Baptist unjust 
just death at the hand of King Herod. And then it flips back to the story and we catch up as the twelve are returning to Jesus at Capernaum at their home base and kind of debriefing what's been going on. And things are so crazy. They're so chaotic. There's so many sick people hurting people coming to hear about Jesus that they don't even have room to sit down and have a meal and debrief. And so Jesus is like, this is crazy. We got to get out of here. So they pack up their lunch. They get on the boat. They go off to the wilderness. The people like see and hear, like someone's like, I hear they're going off to have a picnic. Let's catch them. And this huge mob like follows the boat over the shore. And when they land to like have their lunch and debrief, the people are already there. Like, hey, we missed you. Come, come give us more. And so they do. Jesus, he looks at his exhausted disciples, right? And he's like, all right, let's do this. And so he, he teaches and preaches and ministers to the crowd out in the wilderness all day long. And we get to this beautiful story where, where Jesus looks at his exhausted followers and invites them to continue with him in the work of the ministry because Jesus is compassionate and he sees these hurting, needy, selfish people and he says, man, they're just like sheep without a shepherd. We've got to serve them. And so Jesus takes of the food they had set aside for themselves and he miraculously provides a meal for thousands of people. And then that's where our story picks up. So Jesus has just provided this miraculous meal. Thousands of people have eaten of 13 people's lunch, and they're all satisfied. And things are, um, you can imagine, really like at a fever pitch at this point. These people are so worked up about Jesus' ministry, they've sprinted across land out into the wilderness to sit and hear him teach all day long. They've seen him perform yet another miracle. And in the midst of this, Jesus is like, okay, we got to break this up. So he sends his 12, you guys leave, get in the boat, go, all disperse the crowds. And, and there's all sorts of interesting aspects to this in terms of like digging up some of the cultural pieces and theological pieces and even comparing some of the way the different gospel writers tell this story. But essentially what you can get from this, the way Mark tells it, is that this crowd is getting whipped up enough into a frenzy that Jesus is like, we need to stop this. We need to hit pause. We need to disperse. And so he sends the 12 away. You guys leave. Get in the boat, leave. I'll come meet you. I'll disperse the crowd. Jesus stays with the mob and he slowly, he calms them down and he sends them off. And, and the story kind of calms down with, you can imagine it's, it's nighttime again, right? They, he had taught them all day long. They ate their evening meal. And now the disciples are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee working against a storm And Jesus is by himself on shore, praying. And this is kind of the scene for our story right now. It's the middle of the night. They're rowing across the lake. Jesus is by himself. He gets off by himself and he prays. And this is interesting, by the way. Mark only records Jesus praying by himself three times in the entire gospel. And each time it actually has significant meaning for the text. This is one of those things we can easily breeze over, but there there are three points where Jesus goes off by himself and prays. It's always in isolation. It's always away from other people. And it's always in a moment when he is tempted to short-circuit his ministry. 
Remember, we're talking about Mark at this point from the perspective of toward the cross. Jesus is intentionally moving his ministry, his person, toward this inevitable end of crucifixion at the hands of the Jewish and Roman leaders. And here you see a picture of Jesus seeing the crowd whipped up. We love you. We'll do anything. And he goes, whoa, we need to stop. And he goes off by himself and he prays. And, and again, like you see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see this in Jesus' temptation, you see this at the beginning of his ministry where people essentially, whether it's Satan tempting him or people speaking to him, try and short-circuit Jesus' plan with something seemingly good, right? But Jesus goes off by himself, he prays, he refreshes, he, he grounds himself in his mission. Nope, 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 I know where this is going. That's where it has to go. And so he goes off by himself to be with God and to pray. And as he finishes up, you you get this strange scene, right, of the, the disciples are out on the lake in the midst of this storm, rowing hard against the wind. And we can talk about that. There's all this... There's all this stuff about how the Sea of Galilee works because the way it's situated next to mountains and the way the air moves and these late night windstorms that pop up on the lake are really normal. They even have a name. They're called shark storms in the Aramaic, shark winds. And so these men who are professional fishermen would have known about these things. They would have been common to them. And yet this one is big enough that it's messing with them. It's probably not as big as the one in chapter 4 that Mark calls demonic. But, but this one is it's big enough that they put their sails down and they're just rowing, trying to get through this windstorm. And they're just not making any ground, right? And Jesus' response to that, as you would, is... I should just walk out there to them. I should make sure they're cool, right? (laughs) So he does. Jesus walks out to see the 12 disciples in the midst of the storm, which I want to be really careful here. Jesus walking on water, right? This is is probably the most cliche of Jesus' miracles. And what I mean by that is I don't don't mean it lacks meaning. I mean this is Jesus' miracle that is probably most deeply made its way into our cultural thought, our cultural... This is the most tropish, right? That has worked its way into our understanding, our collective cultural understanding of Jesus' ministry. And so it's easy to dismiss this, but can you please imagine this with me for a moment? Jesus is standing on the beach. There's a storm going on. He sees his friends out in the middle of this storm rowing, and his first thought is, I should just walk out there and make sure they're good. I should go on out there. So he does. He walks out on the lake. Just do, 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 do. That is, that is insane. Like everything about that breaks our understanding of how, how, you know what I mean? Like you can't even, you can't, what is, how, how does that work? What does it look like? Does he have to step over the waves? Like, is it moving underneath? Like, I have no, it's crazy. The world doesn't work that way. So we can't think that way. But Jesus walks out on the water in the storm. He meets his disciples. And, and really quick, what I'd like to do here is I'm gonna, I want to point out a couple specific things in this story that, that I think are going to bring us, I think they're going to bring us to the truth that, that Mark had for his audience. But ultimately, I think this is going to bring us to what, what the Holy Spirit has for us today. So, so I want to I point out Two specific things about this story that we could skip over, and I think that's going to take us to Job, uh, which, which, will, which will give us a good image 
And I think we're going to land on Jesus' teaching in Matthew. But Jesus, be, be in this story with me, is walking on the lake in the middle of the storm. And this is the strangest part of the whole story to me. He's about to walk past them. That's so weird, right? Like, as you read that story, you're like, okay, so, okay, okay. He's walking on water. I get it. But what is it about, what is it about Jesus walking on water that he seemingly forgets what he's doing and wanders past them, right? Like, he's out there just going, this is way cooler than I thought it would be. <laughs> and he's about to pass by them, and, and the way Mark tells the story, it's almost as if Jesus' mind is somewhere else, but he remembers his friends because they start panicking when they see him. He's just going, this is crazy. And all of a sudden he hears, ah, there's a ghost out there! And he looks, oh, yeah, you guys, that's not why I came out here in the first place. But his, his followers see him, and they all freak out and start screaming. They're terrified. They think he's a ghost, which, by the way, you would too if you saw someone walking out to you on the water because people don't do that. It's, it's super weird. They see Jesus just walking out there and they all freak out and he's kind of like, oh, hey, don't worry, it's me, Jesus. To which they're like, yeah, that totally explains this situation. <laughs> of course it does. They're, they're terrified and he comes over, he gets in the boat, he calms the storm and it's just kind of, and he's like, don't, don't be afraid, it's good. All right, so anyway, let's keep going. And you can, can you just imagine really quick that moment as the 12 like, kind of grab the oars again and they're just like, okay, yeah, sure, sure, let's keep going, why not? Just the, the insanity of the story from their perspective that they're stuck in this storm, they're laboring away, they're, they're not making any headway, they just saw this ridiculous miracle, they're trying to process all this stuff they've been a part of in the previous weeks, and as they're stuck in the storm, Jesus just, which by the way, really quick, you kind of have to wonder when Jesus told them to leave, where they were like, well, what are you going to do? You rode here with us. <laughs> we drove, Jesus. <laughs> I'll catch an Uber, it's good. Uh, they're out in the lake, and Jesus just wanders out to them. Like this, Everything about this story is easy for us to skip over because it's so, it's so ingrained in our cultural narrative, and yet everything about this story is insanely unusual. Nothing about this is the way you might expect this sort of story to be. Jesus disperses his followers right when there's this beautiful, amazing miracle. He goes off and prays by himself rather than celebrating with his closest friends. When there's a crazy storm, he decides to just go casually walk on water out to them, then is about to walk by them until they freak out, gets in the boat with them, calms the storm, because, you know, he, that's old hat. He's already done that. Calms the storm, and then they go land and just immediately jump back into the ministry. Immediately. They land, there's immediately a mob, and immediately they're doing exactly what they were doing before. It's almost like this weird little interlude where you just kind of go, okay, I, what is going on here? Right? Let me, let me point out two things here. The first one is, is from Job chapter 9. If you read Job chapter 9, you can actually turn there if you want to, but if you read Job chapter 9, um, it's, it's near the beginning of the book, and Job is giving an argument for why arguing with God is stupid. 
which is ironic in light of the book of Job. But anyway, uh, he's giving an argument for why it's pointless to argue with God. And he basically says, the whole of Job chapter 9 is Job saying, God is so great and so powerful and so wonderful and so other, there's no point in arguing with him because what the heck would we actually say to each other? What am I going to say to the person who made the universe, who makes and destroys mountains, who, who guides the plants to grow, who creates the oceans? And he gives this line that I think is so good. He says in verse 8 of Job 9, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? And, and that reads kind of awkwardly in the English, but what Job is saying there is, the guy, what am I going to say to the person who can glue the sky up on the ceiling and can walk around on the ocean like it's nothing. He's, he's giving images of the power and otherness of God. And in the midst of that, he gives an image of God walking on the water, which is actually a common image attributed to God in the Old Testament. When there is necessity to refer to God's otherness, walking on water is often used. Several times, as we see it in the Psalms, we see it in the wisdom literature. What Job gives us here in chapter 9, especially in verse 8, is just a really clear picture of a particular Jewish articulation of the person of God. He's good, he's just, he's powerful, he cares about us, but ultimately, he is completely separate from us. It's completely other from us. We can approach him, but only with boundaries set in place and distinctions and disconnections because ultimately he is God and we are people. What can we possibly have in common? How can we relate? This is a common articulation of God. He's good. He's loving. He's for us. He's just, but he is other. We can trust him we should worship him. We know that he's covenanted, he's promised himself to us, but, but he's disconnected from us by the very nature of our beings, right? This is a, this is a, a, a really just kind of succinct, uh, succinct understanding of who God is, articulated in this image of God is as different from us as we are from someone who could walk on the water, Right? God is so different from us. The difference between us and God would be like the difference between you and someone out taking a casual stroll on the ocean or stapling the sky up so it stays up. Like that's, that's how distant we are from God. And so Jesus, in this story, and I, I love this, as he, as he takes a moment to pray by himself, to get away, to re-ground himself in his mission, Immediately what he does afterwards is boldly and loudly reestablish his deity to his followers. Remember, this has been one of the themes in Mark up to this point, is Jesus grabs a hold of these specific, these specific cultural or scriptural understandings of God and then connects them to himself. We see him earlier in Mark cleanse an unclean leper, not just perform a miraculous healing, but perform a cleansing. We see him forgive sins. We see him engage people who, who do not have the right to be engaged in worship. Jesus claims 
divinity multiple times through his actions in Mark. And now we see, as he's kind of reaffirming, like recentering himself on the mission, immediately he goes out and he declares his divinity. He walks out on the water showing, yeah, God is the one who tramples the waves. Check it out. Right? That's powerful. What about this next sentence? He meant to pass them by. Easily the weirdest part of the story. I remember sitting once listening to, this is when I was in youth group, my youth pastor was, was, read, this, read this text to us, and he was just like, I have no idea what this part means. And I remember being like, well, that's not helpful. You're the pastor. <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. And he made up this whole thing about how maybe the sea animals were worshiping him, and he was like distracted by that and forgot about the disciples. And I was like, I'm in high school. I don't think that's true. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm not going to say his name, but just in case you podcast this later. <laughs> but, but this is part, he's about to pass them by. This is, this is in the exact same lane as what we've just talked about. Jesus' intent to pass by the disciples and Mark's intentionality to tell us this piece is exactly in line with what we just said, that this is in Jesus' divine self-declaration. Think about the way God reveals himself, this loving, covenantal, but ultimately other God. Think about the ways he reveals himself in the Old Testament. Think about the ways he shows himself to people. Think about Abraham. Think about Moses. Think about the prophets. The way God reveals himself in the Old Testament, there's only a couple ways he does it. Mostly, he sends angels. Mostly, he sends intermediaries, right? But a few select people actually meet with God. In fact, it says of Moses that he met with God the way a friend meets with a friend. And yet, if you actually look at how that's described, man, there are so many things put in place to still separate Moses from God because God is so other. To see God is to die, right? Think about, think about Isaiah's terror as he stands in the presence of God. I am unclean. I'm from a people. I shouldn't be here, right? Think about when, Jesus, when, when God actually allows Moses to see him. Do you remember this story? It's in, oh, Exodus 33. When, when Moses says, I want to see you, God, and God's like, okay, I'm going to let you see me, but it's not going to be how you think it is. I'm gonna, we're going to go up on this mountain path, and there's a little crack, and you're going to hide in the crack, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover it up so you can't see me, and then I'm going to walk past, and you can, you can watch me walk away. Which is kind of weird, right? It's like God's like, listen, you can just see me from the backside as I walk away. You can't see my face. And there's this, this thought in that, right, that God is so other, he's so separate. You can't look God in the face. God passes by, and in his passing by, you can like behold some of his glory, but you're still separate. So Jesus walks out on the water. He loudly declares his divinity. He puts himself in the place of God, not people, walking on the water, and he intends to pass them by. Jesus, or Mark is articulating Jesus' story clearly in the language 
of divine self-revelation, right? But look what Jesus does differently. As he's passing them by, we see disciples who are stymied and stuck and exhausted and terrified. And Jesus stops, calls out to them, hey, it's me. Don't be scared. And then he turns direction, he walks over, he gets in the boat with them, and he calms the storm. I want you to think about that for a minute. Mark is giving us here a very clear picture that that connects Jesus to the overarching story of the Bible, but also declares the thing that is so new and so unique and so powerful about the gospel story. Jesus is God. He's the sort of God that has power and authority over the creation and over demons and over sickness and health, over the physical and the spiritual realm. He is God, the God of the Old Testament, the God who has been with his people since the beginning. And yet, rather than pass his people by, he stops, he turns, and he gets in the boat. Gets in the boat with them. And he calms the storm, and he rides to shore with them. And he steps out into the crowd, into the masses, and he steps into the work with them. And they do ministry together. This is the difference of the story, the message of Jesus, the kingdom of God that Jesus is declaring. Yes, God is here and he has a kingdom and he's doing something. But this is not God the way you have understood him up to this point. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is not just, man, God is good and I I know he's on our team. This is, no, God is in the boat with me. Telling me to calm down telling me not to be scared, taking away the storm, riding with me to shore, doing the work with me when I'm exhausted. This is God with us. Beloved, this is what Mark is is screaming to his audience here. Remember that that Mark has written to the the hurt and and huddled church in persecution in Rome. This church who who has seen their spiritual leaders die, who's who's being persecuted, who's seeing the actual cost of discipleship, the sacrifice they have to give for their faith in, in social standing and in finances and in physical harm and in death. This church is the church that hears Mark say, listen, God is with you. This kingdom you're a part of is not, it's not just, hey, God, that same God, he's cool, he's awesome, he's doing something, you can be a part of it. No, 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 no. He's cool, he's awesome, he's good, he's loving, he's perfect, he's doing something, you can be a part of it, and he's going to be in it with you. You're not going to be alone in this. Beloved, if we, if we hear nothing else today, hear this. Our Jesus is God with us. Because God is with us, we can know Him. We, and and, and, and I want to I unpack that sentence for us. Because God is with us, because Jesus is Emmanuel, we can actually know Him. 
We can be with Him. We can have relationship with Him. We can have intimacy with Him. We can connect with Him. You see, there is a world of difference between knowing about God and knowing God. We talked about this in my GC Friday. There is a world of difference between knowing about God and knowing Him. There, there are lots of people represented in Scripture who know a ton about God. In fact, the religious leaders who oppose Jesus that we've been reading about in Mark know a ton about God. And yet when they're face to face with Him, they don't recognize Him. And beloved, if you, if you hear nothing else today, like zone in on this. Jesus' own followers, his closest friends, are sitting in the boat, and Mark reminds us their hearts were hardened and they did not understand the loaves. They missed it. Jesus walks out on the water, says, calm down, don't be scared, gets in the boat with them, calms the storm, and their hearts are hardened. They don't understand it. You can know a lot about God without knowing Him. But Jesus, Jesus has made a way for you to break through that. You are not doomed to that. You are not stuck in that. Jesus has made a way that you might be with God and know Him. Your your soul might be linked to Him. You might find life and life abundant in Him. Because of Jesus. This is, this is what I want us to zone in on today. In, in Colossians 1, Paul, Paul says, in, in the famous passage in Colossians 1, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes the unknowable God knowable. He makes the other God present. He makes the God of the universe, the story that's been unfolding from, from Genesis 1, and will continue. He makes that God accessible. There is no temple you must travel to. There's no veil you must stand behind. There are no separations. Jesus has opened a way for you to actually be with God. And that is so strange. It seems so when you actually get into what that looks like in your life, it seems so irreverent. We think about God and we think about grandiose, beautiful spaces and architecture and choirs and glowing lights and angels and all these different things. And yet, Emmanuel in this story means a sweaty dude sitting in a boat while some guys are rowing. Right? Emmanuel means a guy walking with you while you're preaching and helping sick and hurting people. It means a dude sitting with you while you eat your picnic lunch that God provided. Emmanuel is so plain. It's so simple and present. It seems so irreverent because it's just here. God steps down into the muddy, broken, sinful, cursed world and he spends time with us. This is Paul in Philippians 2 that, that Jesus, though he, though, he, though he was God, 
right? He did not hold that as something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the appearance of a man. He became a servant, a slave, a sufferer. He poured himself out, and he was found on earth. In this cursed and broken world, where people sweat and people die and people are mean and people laugh. In this world, God showed up and spent time with his people and said, I love you, I'm with you, we can be together. Beloved, this is the story of the gospel. We serve a God who has actually made a way for us, who has actually bridged the gap between perfection and curse and life and death and stepped down and condescended to our level and met us and said, I will gladly be with you. This story unifies. It unifies across all of creation. Nothing about, like, nothing about your standing in life. Like If you're in this space, whether you are old or young or rich or poor, whatever your story is, this thing draws us together because we're all equally in need of this Jesus. We're all equal in our, in our unworthiness and in our inability to bridge the gap. And Jesus steps down and condescends and he's with all of us. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. Here's, here's what I want to do with this. Uh, th- this last Wednesday, one of our students led the discussion, Drew Roth. It was really cool um, of Drew. He, he, we we're going through this series where we're talking about the different Gospels and he taught part of it and did really good, and it was great. But he ended by talking through uh, the last passage in Matthew when Jesus gives the Great Commission. And we talk about that passage a lot, you know, go therefore and make disciples. And it's usually taught from this perspective of challenge, of how do you engage and how do you put yourself full into the work of the kingdom and those things. And that's good. But, but I loved how Drew approached this passage because we so rarely talk about it this way. But, but he latched on to the very last thing Jesus says right before, as Matthew tells it, right before he ascends into heaven where he says, I am with you to the end of the age. He latched onto that phrase where Jesus says, you can do this work. You can, you can do what I'm telling you to do because I'm with you. And I'm going to be with you forever. Jesus connects this, this gospel call to be a part of the work to his withness, to his connection to us, his relational intimacy with us. You can do this. I'm with you. I'm with you. Beloved, we've been, we've been working through this, this weird story about Jesus inviting his followers to be a part of the work for several, several weeks. And we've talked a lot about rest and work and, and having eyes to see and having eyes that are closed and counting the costs of discipleship and paying what it costs to actually follow Jesus, but also understanding that Jesus knows you as you are and he meets you in your... All right? like you've, you've kind of seen that tension as we've worked through this chapter where you see Jesus saying, don't be flippant about this, count the cost, but also I really love you and I understand that you're exhausted and we need to get away together. And like You see this tension as we've worked through this. It culminates, this story ends with the disciples still exhausted, but continuing the work. 
The story ends with them landing in a new city with a new mob, with new sick people. And Jesus is like, let's keep doing it. Let's keep going. And then here's, here's what I want us to reflect on in this. I think, the, I think the thing that I think the Holy Spirit probably wants us to camp on this morning out of this text comes back to this idea. If you are given over to the kingdom, if you actually count the cost and you submit your life to Christ and you give yourself over to the work of inviting more people to the wedding feast of the Lamb, if you do that, that never ends. You will never, get, you will never in your life get to a point where you go, I'm done. Every, everyone said yes. They're all in. That's not how it works. There will, we're in this cursed and broken world where people are eaten alive by sin and evil and injustice, and you will never get to a point where you just see it all fixed and you're done. Every time you walk around a corner, you will see more curse and more death and more hurt, and that is so overwhelming. And when you, when you have actually counted the cost and you've given yourself over and you have an actual understanding of what's at stake in this life and you're actually pouring yourself out to faithfully declare the truth of the gospel and invite more people in and you realize that it's just never ending and there's more hurting people and more lost people and more people who need Jesus and it just keeps coming and coming and coming, that can burn you out quicker than you even blink can just chew you up and spit you out. It seems so overwhelming. It seems so intense. It seems so huge. The work literally, it just never, it just never ends. The curse is that big. Beloved, that is true. And if you give yourself over to the kingdom and you count the costs and you do that, you will see those things. You will see the grandness of the curse. My promise to you is this. Jesus is more grand. He's bigger. His gospel is larger. His love is deeper. His power is bigger. His salvation is more lasting. Our Jesus is so huge, he will outlive the curse by far. Can't hold a candle to him. And as you look at this overwhelming wall of brokenness caused by sin and destruction and separation from God, you don't look at it alone. You're surrounded not only by your brothers and sisters who've counted the cost, but you are surrounded by Jesus. He's with you. He labors with us. We lean into his strength. We lean into his work. We allow him to do the work. And we just join in it. We don't take that weight on our own shoulders. We just join in what Jesus is doing. So beloved, I want to encourage you guys to do this as we end out today. I'm going to take a few minutes. The, the band's going to come back up. And we're, we're going to do what we do, right? We're going to have a few minutes to sit and pray and then we'll sing some songs and end out. But I want to encourage you guys to, to take this larger picture we've been working through for several weeks, and I want you to process this with Jesus.
I want you to actually sit by yourself and pray through this for a few minutes. Have you counted the cost? Right? Do you actually, like, give yourself over to the work of the kingdom? Is your heart hardened? Are you locked into the things of this world? Are you more like Herod than John the Baptist? If you are, if you're actually seeking to die to yourself and be a part of the kingdom, like, have, are you actually balancing that labor with your rest in Christ? Like, Are you spent and exhausted and burning yourself out? Are you seeing the weight of the work and just becoming complacent and lazy because it seems so overwhelming? Are you seeking to be the Savior? And, and all of that comes around this idea of, and when was the last time, when was the last time you just rested in how intimately close Jesus is with you? When was the last time you let go of your oars for a minute in your toil and realized that God has not passed you by, that you can look in his face and not die, that he is in the boat with you? telling you to calm down, telling you not to be afraid, being strong in your weakness? How, how much does Jesus' unavoidable closeness actually engage and affect the way you live out your faith? Are you engaging him like an Old Testament Jewish person who knows a lot about him and yet you have to stay separate? Are you actually sitting face to face with him? Are you actually enjoying the witness that Jesus has bought for you? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.